to Romans chapter 9. Our reading will also be the basis of our meditation coming from verses 14 through 18. Romans 9 verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Those of you just joining us this week, I should have already mentioned that the lighter, paler, yellow highlight is highlighting all of the quotes from the Old Testament, which are very frequent in this section. Now, our focus this morning is on the great contrast between Moses and Pharaoh. One, that God showed mercy, and the other, God passed over, God actually hardened. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moldness say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of it 
and the verses are missing. Our scripture reading will end there with verse 21. But it's going to go on to say that God from this same pile of clay has the right to make one vessel to honor and another vessel to dishonor according to his sovereign will. Well, let's draw near to our God in prayer. Father, we ask that you would help us to take in the sobering message of these verses. These verses are not verses that are perhaps often talked about, that are often the focus of public consideration. But here they are, verses, O Spirit of God, that you have put in our Bibles, And as we work through the book of Romans, we want to look at every verse and hear you speak to us every message that you have deemed to be appropriate for us. So give us grace and humility and the help of your spirit as we work through this passage this morning. Father, we pray that you would look on us with uh, kindness and uh, compassion. We pray for a a, a number of health concerns. Uh, We uh, thank you that for Corinne Ross, her visit to the eye doctor uh, this week, though no definitive answer looking more like uh, uh, cataracts than something that could not be dealt with. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Uh, we do pray for Trish Hada and ask that you would continue uh, to bring healing to her. We pray that you'd uh, help Pastor Bob and that you'd give uh, skilled to those who are tending him and uh, prescribing uh, the helps for him. Uh, give kindness and give your mercy. Father, we pray that you'd smile on us as we look ahead to uh, ongoing ministry and future ministry. We think of the VBS to be held this uh, summer, and thank you for the number of children that are already registered for that. We thank you for the ongoing ministry of CityGate and pray for these men that are seeking to transition back into society Provide for them work, provide for them uh, long-term housing, and we pray that you would use the uh, preaching of the word of God each evening uh, to direct their minds to you. Uh, We're grateful, Lord, for the news coming from Harrison House of uh, an increasing group that are interested in hearing the scriptures, and we pray that you would do their hearts good and that you would be pleased to uh, convert any of these who are uh, in the fall or winter time of life and are yet unconverted. 
Uh, Father, we would pray that you would be pleased to be with our uh, brother Ed Sutherland as he is um, uh, speaking at a church this morning in conjunction with that uh, Gideon convention. And we pray, Lord, that you would give him a, a kind of focus where his mind and his heart and his tongue uh, are all uh, tied together and made useful for your work. Uh, we pray, Lord, for our friends who labor in the gospel. We uh, thank you for uh, news of your blessing, Pastor Jeff uh, Johnson, at the Trinity Ladies Retreat. Uh, we pray for his ministry this Lord's Day and ask that you would wonderfully bless in that. We thank, Lord, of Pastor Dave Merck. Uh, we're uh, grateful for this opportunity that he has uh, to teach from the United States into the Far East uh, by digital means. And we pray that as he builds on his uh, long-term counseling teaching and he covers uh, in these couple of weeks medical issues and biblical counseling as there are two translators to help, as there is a doctor that will make contribution as there are a very limited number of 30 men that will be tuning in, we pray that as this is recorded and then distributed to many, many pastors there in the Far East, that you would wonderfully bless it. And we pray for our friends, Pastor Bala and Sharmini. We ask that you would help in his ongoing ministry. And we pray for Sharmini that that uh, surgery that she is hoping to get in April, that this would take place and that she would know uh, significant healing and significant reduction of her pain. And Father, for us, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that we can walk into this building without a fear of being uh, watched and uh, noted down uh, we thank you for the friendships uh, that we have uh, through our worship of you. And we pray that as we give of our tithes and offerings, that you would give us glad hearts. And we pray that you would bless the word to our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Then let's sing together as we anticipate our study uh, hymn number 470 in the red or from the screen, How Vast the Benefits Divine.
come once again this morning to our study in the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 9 in this section of the international defense of the gospel. Paul is defending the gospel going to all of the nations and not being confined to the nation of Israel. We have seen in the first five verses something of the Apostle Paul's heart towards his kinsmen according to the flesh. In order to be able to preach the gospel to them, he endured these 195 lashes through that series of beatings from the Jews. Uh, We find with Leon Morris that as Paul moves from his expression of sorrow to the development of his argument, he begins with a powerful statement about the sovereignty of God. That's plainly what this chapter is about. His God is no petty deity unable to affect his purpose in the universe that God created, but a mighty God who is doing what he has planned. There was a strong emphasis on mercy, for Paul is not talking about a mighty and arbitrary tyrant, but about a God who loves all that he has made, and specifically the people that he has chosen. In this section 6 through 13, Paul makes the point that God has always worked on the principle of election of choosing out people through whom he would work his purpose. And what we have seen is something of God's choice. These men named along the top, along with their wives, were the only ones who made it onto the ark. I think that qualifies for something of a sovereign choice on the part of God. But even more than this, the blessing of salvation seems to have come down through that line of Noah, Shem, and on down to Eber and to Abraham. We saw last week that God sovereignly chose Abraham, and of his sons, God chose to work through the line of Isaac and not through the line of his son Ishmael, and not through uh, the, what is it, six sons of his later wife, Keturah. So here is God's choice down through the line, and I think it is sobering to consider what God's, from God's perspective, is saying, I'm choosing this line, but I am passing over others. I am choosing not to show mercy that is going to end up in salvation. And if there is something within you that just viscerally responds in a negative way to this truth, I get that. I understand that. I still remember when I was 18 years old and for the first time in my life, having grown up in the church, to hear about the sovereignty of God, and you may be where I was at that time, asking the question, is this who the Bible reveals God to be? And that question was answered as a yes in my own mind. 
Here we are this morning. We've got Moses and Pharaoh, two men living on the earth at the same time. And what we find is that God, in keeping with his methodology, where he lifts up the one, he lifts up the humble believer in Christ, and he takes the one who is filled with pride and brings him down. What we've got is, in this paragraph, 14 through 18, is that God is building on what he has already said. He said, now you know about Jacob, and you know about Esau, how God loved the one and how he hated the other. And now he comes and he's giving us another illustration of men who are very different, but men who knew one another, men who lived at the same time. A man who would have had opportunity of understanding the truth of the gospel, but he was passed over and he willingly uh, participated in a fight against God. More specifically, we have for Moses that God says, I'm showing him mercy. And we've got for Pharaoh where God is actually saying, I am hardening him. Difficult concepts to fit between our little pea brains and fit between our ears, but it is truth, if we understand it aright, will cause us to have a bigger view of God and a larger appreciation for what he has done in saving us And it will, at the same time, be a catalyst to our evangelism. So let's jump into our passage and notice from verse 14, this is Roman numeral 1, the objection. The objection against God being sovereign. God is sovereign. God chose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. That's not Fair. It's not fair for God to choose. It's not fair for Him to have favorites. Well, we have to look at God and find out what God does, and that will help determine what really is fair. But notice here, first of all, A, Paul was likely challenged on God's absolute sovereignty. It is a regular thing for Paul to anticipate objections to God's truth. We've already seen this in the book of Romans. In Romans 6, where he's just been teaching about justification by faith, he knows that somebody is going to say, yeah, but then you're saying that you can just go on in sin. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then for three chapters, he lays out the answer. No, if God declares you to be righteous, God is also going to be working in your heart and transforming that individual. So time and again, Paul has these challenges to his teaching And he typically meets those objections head on. 
like he does here. You're going to object to this? Let me go ahead and tell me what you, tell you what your objection is going to be. And then let me address this. And then in verse 19, he's going to deal with this again. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Paul has been preaching the gospel, the sovereignty of God in the gospel, over and again for years and years, and there are only a limited number of objections that the human heart can come up with. He knows what they're going to be. He spells them out. Now let me knock that objection down. Secondly, B, Paul quickly and plainly dismisses the objection against God's absolute sovereignty. If I've got to choose between embracing who the Bible teaches me is God, or I have to give that up because of your notions of fairness, let me tell you very quickly that I'm going to stick with the God of the Bible and I am going to dismiss your notions of what is fair or not fair. Paul's rhetorical question, is there injustice on the part of God? We can't see it on our English, but for the Greek reader, they can see that there's a negative that's put in it. It's almost like Paul is saying, you're not going to really say that God is not fair, are you? The, the no is already there. But even in our English Bibles, he follows along by no means. Certainly not. God forbid. There can be no doubt. But here's the problem. Jews of Paul's day were assuming that when God said, said that he was going to make Israel his son, that he was going to save absolutely everyone who descended physically from Abraham. But those living in the Old Testament knew that really wasn't true. Moses knew that not everyone who came out of Egypt and was in the wilderness wandering, he knew that not all of those were right with God. That was made abundantly plain, and we're going to see it a little bit uh, here this morning. But most Jews of Paul's day were convinced that absolutely every descendant of Abraham is going to be saved. So Paul quickly dismisses the objection. Thirdly, see, God wants us to know that his promises are absolutely true. His promises are absolutely true. God doesn't want you thinking the objection in verse 6 that the word of God failed, that, that that's a silly objection. And, and Paul wants us to know that this objection, well, it, it's not fair. God is not being fair in his sovereign choice. He, he sets that aside. He wants us to have confidence in the word of God. But confidence in the word of God is not the same as naivety, and it is not the same as a simple 
approach to the Bible. Think of this promise. The jailer says, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, that's true. But yet Jesus, when he was doing miracles, John 2 and 23 and following, many believed in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew they did not have a genuine kind of faith. They had a temporary kind of faith. They had seen a miracle in response to that. Now they're going to believe Jesus, but it's not going to last. And it's not going to go deep into their lives to change them. John 14, Jesus says that the kind of true faith is the faith that someone shows when they truly love Jesus Christ, they keep my commandments. And so when we come to a truth of the Bible, what could be uh, more simple? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be saved. That's true. But there are biblical qualifications and conditions. It's not going to be, it can't be a temporary faith, a temporary believing. It can't be a shallow believing that doesn't soak down and impact your life. Jesus also taught, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's the belief that saves is a belief that deeply impacts us and changes us, and it is a faith and a belief that continues on through persecution until the return of Christ or until we are brought to heaven. Is God fair in election? Don't come at this with a just a quick, initial, knee-jerk kind of glance at the passage. Think through it carefully. Are you willing to do that with me this morning? I hope that you are. Let's come to Roman numeral two. God's compassionate mercy to Moses. God's compassionate mercy to Moses. Now, verse 15 and 16. Notice Moses' question to God. And his question is to God is going to be predominantly one of, how do I know that you are showing favor to me? But let's back up. Moses' state of mind. Paul is going to be quoting in verse 16. Did you notice that in your Bible? Where is he quoting from? Exodus 33, right? 33 and verse 19. Well, guess what's going on in Exodus 32? That's when Paul, when Moses, comes down from the mountain with the two tables of stone, and there's this party going on in the camp because they've gotten their golden calf, and Moses throws down the tablets of stone, it's a, it's a turning point. It's a, a major event in Israel's history. And in uh, Exodus 32, 25, very interesting. You, you remember the thing of Aaron, Moses' brother. I said, well, well I just I put this in. It. This calf just came out of, of the fire. 
But there comes a point where Israelites who had to give up their golden calf, they are offended at God and they are offended at their fellow Jews. To the point, in Exodus 32 and verse 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. There are people who said, We ain't giving up the golden calf. And Moses says, they've made their choice. And where the nation and the church were wrapped up together, the nation had to put their swords on and kill. This is horrible. Who's going to fight against God over some dead golden calf? But that's what they do. And that day, about 3,000 of the people fell, and Moses said, Each of you has been ordained for the service of the Lord. Listen to this tragic phrase. Each one at the cost of his son and of his brother. So this is a pivotal time. Now in Exodus 33, God says, Golden calf? All right. You go ahead and go up to the promised land and you take possession of it. Here's the only deal. I'm not going with you. Whoa. Think if God said that to us. We've done something as a congregation that is, we gave up the Bible. Something major. Something the equivalent of bringing in a golden calf. And imagine that God would say to us, you just go ahead and play church. You gather at the same time, 11 o'clock, Sunday morning. Go through the motions. You go ahead and do your evangelism. Here's the only deal. I'm not going to be with you. That should send terror down our spines. It goes on in Exodus 33 and verse 5 to say, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And so what he's saying is that my feeling toward you and the golden calf and your fighting for the golden calf is such that... I, as the holy God, if I were to go with you, I would end up destroying you. So I'm not going to go with you. I'm just going to leave you alone. Moses goes to God in prayer. And that leads us into something of his question. If you turn to Exodus 33, uh, verse 12 now, his predominant question is about God's favor. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. God, you've told me that I know you, Moses, by name, and Moses, you have found favor in my sight. 13, 
Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Three times there, favor, favor, favor. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Moses said, please show me your glory. Secondly, be now. God's answer to Moses. His answer, as we have it in Romans 9, is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. First of all, though, there's God's answer about showing Moses God's glory. And he says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before you, and will proclaim before you my name, Jehovah, Yahweh. Then, God's answer about showing Moses and the nation God's favor. Latter part of verse 19. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God, we, Moses says, We've just seen this devastate. These people were aligned with the golden calf, and there's, there's that problem. And then they're, they're willing to get killed over it. And then for those that are left, you're still complaining that they are a stiff-necked group. How do I know who you're going to show favor to? You tell me that you have favor. And God says, Moses, that's really up to me as God, isn't it? I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Moses knew that he did not work his way to heaven. You can find his name in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. By faith, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, he did this, and did, by faith, he was justified. He needed God's grace just like Abraham did and just like Noah did. He would have known the truth, though the verse was not yet written. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But what God is saying to Moses is that when I am making my decision on who I show my mercy, I don't bring any humans into the boardroom of heaven. This is a God choice. This is a decision that is made at the highest level. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, he makes his decision based on the counsel of his own will. God says, what should I do? 
And the will of God answers, this is what you should do. It is an in-house decision. It is an in-God decision. It is a boardroom decision. And none of us are in that boardroom when God consults his will. Thirdly, see, Paul's summary to the Romans. So he's just talked about God's word, verse 15, to Moses, and now Paul's going to expand on it. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And what you and I have to keep in mind at this point is that the human clay that God works with is bad. So there is this pile of clay that is all humanity descended from Adam. And all of the pile is bad. How do we know that? Well, Paul's already told us. In Romans 3 and verse 9 and following, he said things like, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. So that's our picture. We got a pile of human clay that is bad, and none of them are seeking God, and none of them are doing anything good. How many of them are going to be saved without God getting involved? They won't even seek after God. How are they going to be saved? And I think if you keep in mind that pile of clay that we're coming to in the later verses, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? If God does not initiate salvation, no one will be saved. That's the message of Romans 3. It's also the message of Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Just listen to verse 3. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what the clay is like. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We as believers were a part of this pile of clay. And while we were a part of this clay, we were following the prince of the power of the air. We were doing whatever our carnal bodily desires wanted to do. And while we were in that pile, we were guilty and we were under the wrath of God even as the rest. We believers used to be there. Everyone who was not converted is still in that pile, even as the rest. Okay, that's our word of background. Now let's look at verse 16 specifically. And in verse 16, we are told that God's favor in salvation is not based on man. It's not based on the man who wills not on human will. Well, of course it's not. There is no one who seeks after God. It's not based on the man who runs or exerts himself. 
And the word that Paul uses here is a word for the foot race in the stadium. It's mean, I'm going to win that kind of exertion. It says, God is not making his decision on the man who wills. God's not making his decision on that one who puts the most exertion in and wins the race of works. No. That's not what it is. Spiritually dead men do not run to God. They don't do any good. Thirdly, may not be thirdly in your notes, don't worry about it. God's favor in salvation is based on God's mercy. Verse 16. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has Mercy. Mercy is the emotion that arises when you see somebody in trouble. Someone has a car accident, a brand new car is all mangled, and they're up and walking, but with a limp, and they got blood flowing on them. What is your feeling towards them? Well, it's something of pity, and it's something of, of mercy. But mercy for God... Is God looking on this pile that is guilty in their sin and God having anger for them and he's withholding that anger? He's not judging them yet. This is what they deserve, but I'm not going to give it to them. And it's so interesting to find this Ephesians 2, verse 1 dead in your trespass and sin, you're following the devil. And you're living according to the flesh. That's one, two, and three. And now verse four. But God, being rich in mercy. You deserve my wrath, but in mercy I am holding back my wrath and my judgment. And really... In the process of salvation, that's where it needs to start. Because we're a part of that mess, and God has, we are children of wrath, even as the others. And God starts by mercy and reigning in his wrath. Now imagine that someone in your home left the garbage in the kitchen before you left on a week of vacation and turned the air conditioner off, it's hot. You thought about it, you had a few words about it on the way home. Whose fault? Let's get over that for a moment. But who is going to be the hero? And what is the hero going to do? I am not going to breathe. I am going to close my nose with one hand, and I'm going to grab that and run as fast as I can with it, and hopefully nothing's going to fall out. That's what God does in the first step of salvation. Your sin stinks. And God has to plug his nose. That's his mercy. 
But even more is his mercy is when God takes the trash and he makes something good of it. And somebody's feeling right now, how politically incorrect. Compare men and women, boys and girls, to garbage. Well, my friends, Jesus did it. Those times when Jesus is warning about the fire of Gehenna, he's talking about that valley there in ancient Jerusalem where they would take their garbage and they'd burn it there. So that's what God is going to do with those who do not believe. They're going to be put on the, the garbage pile of the universe. It's horrible. It's offensive. Get offended, but then understand why God says something like that and repent and get covered in the righteousness of Christ. God being rich in mercy. And this is what God needs to do with Israel. It's still predominantly a bunch of stiff-necked individuals. But I'm going to plug my nose and I'm going to take you up to the promised land. Listen to Matthew Henry. All God's reasons for mercy are found within himself. There's no good in the pile of clay there. If God's going to show mercy, if he's going to give his grace, if he's going to love, it's because of that which is found in the heart of God. All the children of men alike are in a state of sin and misery, equally under the guilt and wrath of God. God, in a way of sovereignty, picks out some from this fallen, rebellious race to be vessels of grace and glory. God gives his gifts to whom he wills without giving us any reason. God, according to his own good pleasure, focuses on some to be monuments of mercy and grace while he passes by others. The expression is very emphatic and the repetition makes it more so. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. This conveys a perfect absoluteness in God's will. He will do what he wills, and he does not give account of any of his matters, nor is it fit that he should. As these great words of Exodus 3, I am that I am, the explanation of Yahweh, Jehovah, do abundantly express the absolute independency of God's being, so these words, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, do as fully express the absolute right of God to choose according to his own will. The objection, the mercy to Moses, Moses, I'm going to show you favor, but the basis of my favor to you is me. Now, thirdly, God's glory through a hardened Pharaoh. 917, verse 17. First of all, A, Pharaoh's circumstances and attitude toward God. And as a bit of background, before we look at God confronting him, who is Pharaoh? Well, he was the most powerful man in Moses' day. 
not when he's buried under the Red Sea, but up until that point, he's the most powerful man on the earth. And he opposed God from the beginning. First time, Moses and Aaron go and speak to him, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is Jehovah? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. And you know about the ten plagues. You know about these very plain judges. From the, from the get-go, Aaron's staff will turn into a snake. And the magicians can make their Egyptian staffs turn into snakes. But Aaron's snake eats their snakes. Exodus 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. Exodus 8.32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. A couple sentences more, Exodus 9.34, but Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased. So he sinned again and hardened his heart with firmness. He and his servants, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength. Behind Pharaoh hardening his own heart, though, we've got God prophesying what he's going to do. Moses is there with his father-in-law, and he's going to leave Jethro and go to Egypt. And while he's on the way, going to, it's before he's ever talked to Pharaoh. Exodus 4.21. And Yahweh said to Moses, When you go to return to Egypt, see to it that all the miraculous wonders which I have put in your hand, that you do them before Pharaoh. But as for me, I will harden his heart with strength, so that he will not let the people go. Another prophecy, Exodus 7 and verse 1. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I set you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother shall be your prophet. Now verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness, that I may multiply my sins and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So there's our background about Pharaoh. This gives us something of his circumstances and his attitude towards God. We're not solving the debate of what came first, God's hardening, but what do you think came first? God is looking on this sinful mass of clay and is just leaving him to himself at the very least. But this language of hardening seems to go a little further. Secondly, B, the reality of God raising up Pharaoh. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. God has purpose in absolutely everything that he does. It is not an accident that when Moses is alive, Pharaoh is alive. It's not an accident when Moses there is in Egypt, Pharaoh is in Egypt. 
For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. God is saying saying to Pharaoh here, I raised you up. I gave you all of your fine abilities to govern. I placed you in a family of rulers. I brought you to this particular time. This is when you were conceived. This is when you were born. I brought Moses, my servant, into the royal court. And if you wanted to know about me, you could have. And you know likely, you likely knew that back in Egypt's history with their worst famine, there was a Hebrew who was the governor over Egypt under Pharaoh. His name was Joseph. I raised you up. You did not make yourself. You did not become who you are by your own power. I raised you up. Am I here, or whoever you are? The exact same thing is true of God and you. Whatever abilities you have, whatever bent and propensity, whatever time you're born into history, God has raised you up. Remember what they said to Esther. Could it be that for such a time as this that God has brought you to this hour? So God pulls the credit to himself as he talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh probably didn't think that probably had a little higher opinion of himself than to think that God was orchestrating his life. Thirdly, see, two reasons for God raising up Pharaoh, that I may show my power in you, I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's a frightening concept for an unbeliever. For God to be saying to Pharaoh, this is why you're here, I want to enter into a confrontation with you, and I want to show others who's going to win. I want to demonstrate my power in you. Notice again, God is not afraid to take on the most powerful men on earth. In fact, I actually think God wants to do it. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Great Nebuchadnezzar looking over Babylon that I had built. And he'd been warned by God. And God gave him the mind of a cow for seven years. But then God had mercy. And he humbled him. And we have reason to believe that we will see that formerly proud man in heaven. But not so with Pharaoh. God looks forward to his contest with the great Pharaoh of Egypt. And when Pharaoh saw that Aaron's staff turned snake, swallowed up the magician of Egypt's snakes, he should have bowed before God and given up the fight right then. 
Instead, Pharaoh stays in the fight against God until every firstborn son of Egypt is dead, including his own. And he continues the fight so that he madly rushes in to the great walls of the Red Sea. And God wins. And he's dead at the bottom of the Red Sea in judgment, passing into the eternal judgment of God. When God enters into the contest with a great man like Pharaoh, our God is so worried about it that Psalm 2 tells us that the first thing that he does is has a belly laugh. Ha, ha, ha! The greatest man in all the earth. And then he judges them. And then he says, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I'm going to laugh, and then I'm going to judge you, and then I'm going to move on with Jesus Christ who's bringing salvation to others who don't fight against God. Second reason, God wanted to proclaim his own name through Pharaoh, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God says to Pharaoh, Mr. Pharaoh, So you do not want to bow before me. You do not want to pay the rent for living in my world by paying me glory. I'm still going to collect the rent that is due. God to Pharaoh, you don't want to admit my glory. You don't want to admit that you are not the center of the universe. You do not want to humble yourself before your maker. Okay, Mr. Pharaoh, I accept the challenge. How about as widely as the Bible is ever read and as long as the Bible is read that men, women, boys, and girls will find in my holy book that you fought against the God of heaven and you lost. Isn't that what God is saying? I've got two reasons here for opposing it. Demonstrate my power in you and to proclaim my name, my glory throughout the earth. Never forget that it is the business of God to take the proud man and bring him down and to take the humble believer in Jesus Christ and bring him up. It's almost like you could summarize God's mission in the world to be that, to take the proud, pull them down, take the humble believer in Jesus Christ and exalt them. And if you're sitting here this morning full of yourself, be warned by the example of Pharaoh. The objection, the mercy to Moses, the hardening to Pharaoh. And now finally, God's sovereign choice in salvation. God chooses whom he shows mercy. This is A. So then he has mercy on whom he wills. Abraham was an idolater. Isaac played favorites with his sons out of a carnal preference of a shepherd wanting to eat wild game as opposed to that of the flock. Rebecca connived and schemed against her husband's imbalance. 
And Jacob repeatedly lied to his dad and then ran into a bigger cheat than himself and his father-in-law, Laban. None deserved salvation. None deserved God's grace. The Bible is very plain that there is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. God starts the salvation by holding his nose, going in and getting the garbage, and then, in the case of believers, he renovates the garbage. It starts with his mercy, though. Secondly, B, God chooses those that he hardens. Latter part of verse 18, and he hardens whomever he wills. Very plainly, the focus is on God in this paragraph, isn't it? It's true of God in showing mercy. He takes the initiative, but there's some kind of initiative that God takes here in in hardening. Paul's prepared us for this. Romans 1, verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28 of Romans 1, God gave them up to a debased mind. And and some suggest when God comes to the pile, yes, he picks out some and he renovates them and he forgives them, makes them to be his son, and the rest he just passes over. But does that satisfy the language of God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Practical lessons. Roman practical lesson number one. God's sovereign election promotes our worship of God. You you stretch my mind out, and then you're going to say I need to turn to God and worship Him. Well, look at the Lord Jesus. Did Jesus Christ believe in sovereign election? Matthew 11, He's given His woes on the city. Cities of Galilee that resisted. And then he goes to God in prayer. Romans eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus takes the truth of God's sovereign choice, and He's able to come through that and is our example teaching you and me as a part of that sinful clay that is redeemed to say we owe it all to God. We need to worship God. We need to praise God that he has done this. But I hasten on. The second lesson, God's sovereign election is consistent with evangelism. Two passages. John six thirty seven. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Does Jesus believe in election? Yes. There are those that have been given to him. 
Does he believe in evangelism? Yes. He turns right then and makes an appeal to the unconverted, saying, whoever comes to me will never be pushed away. But then see it in the passage of Matthew 11. Does Jesus believe in sovereign election? And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then what's the very next thing out of Jesus' mouth? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus prays to his Father, considering the divine choice and salvation. And then he turns to the unconverted and he pleads with them that they will come. He appeals to them, don't you feel the guilt? Don't you feel the unrest of your soul? Come to Jesus and God will make it all better. Verse 29, Jesus urges sinners to take on the yoke and the harness of Jesus. You're going to be working for Jesus. You're going to be in his yoke, in his harness. But he is a good kind of master. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find my yoke easy as I and the Father send the Holy Spirit to you. So these great truths of God's sovereign election and Jesus turns and he makes the appeal to sinners that they need to feel their guilt, that they ought to come and if they will come, this is the Jesus that they will find gentle and lowly of heart. My here, if you never understand the sovereignty of God in salvation, but you still believe in Jesus Christ, you'll get that sorted out in heaven. But you'll at least get to heaven. But if you fight against Jesus Christ, you don't want his yoke, you don't want to follow his leadership, then you will never Make it to heaven. Do you want to pillow your head this night that no matter what sins you've committed, that they have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you want peace as you drop off to sleep, as you're thinking about where you stand before God? Don't you want peace? then come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly God, truly man. Perfect life, perfect death to cover all of your sins. And then the perfect Lord, lowly of heart, gentle, he'll make the yoke to be easy by the sending of his spirit. Come to that Jesus Christ today. Let's pray.
Father, please own your word. Please look on all of us here with mercy and compassion. Please, even for those that are hard-hearted and fighting against you, who want to be preeminent, who want to be popular, who want to be number one, Father, in grace and kindness and in mercy, plug your nose over these sins. Withhold your judgment and give light and understanding so that Jesus will appear precious. We pray these things in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.